Welcome to Civil Discourse, a podcast where participants are free to share their ideas, empathize with other perspectives, and who intend to advance to a better solution to fix a societal ill. We will focus on topics that are particularly complicated. In a time where information is from sources more opinionated than ever, our mission is to find solutions and goals to accelerate the nation's progress with cultural impunity. I'm your host, Todd Furness. Welcome to today's episode of Civil Discourse, hosted by Todd Furness. I'm Todd Furness, and I'm joined today by Dean Finelli. I want to, before I get started with Dean, I want to just remind everybody we really appreciate your support, and I encourage you to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. We we welcome that, and we need it, and uh, we appreciate the comments below and the opportunity to engage with you. Uh, today, we have Dean Finelli. Dean is uh, an interesting guy in that, for many reasons, but amongst others, he tackles the complicated issues around intellectual property as a lawyer, and he's also a venture capitalist. Uh, so he's got some different perspectives on the healthcare world. He also hosts a podcast uh, that uh, deals with politics, uh, law, and life sciences. So, Dean, welcome to the program today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's great to join you. And I just want to use an editorial note. Uh, we're, we're ripping Dean away from what is likely a fun-filled vacation. So, Dean, thanks for, uh, if that, thanks for stepping away from holiday for a moment. <laughs> it's my pleasure. So, Dean, you, you have an interesting perspective. You went to uh, you know, school up in Philadelphia, and then you went to George Washington Law. How did you end up getting into, how did you decide to go into intellectual property law? And then, uh, ultimately, you bridged into VC. Yeah, thank you. So uh, I originally I'm from Philadelphia and I started uh, I was at Temple University uh, getting my Ph.D. in organic chemistry. And it's it's funny. It's one of those things where, you know, a lot of people say, how did you jump from, you know, getting a Ph.D. to patent law? And it's not that big of a leap, actually. You know, being a, a scientist, you really have to love it. And it's really those little nuances that make the difference. And if you don't love it, you kind of miss those little nuances of whether it's temperature, pH, anything uh, like those type of parameters in a lab, you know, so I liked the science, but I didn't love it. And, you know, I found patent law was a way to kind of bridge uh, both things that I liked. I was always interested in, um, you know, the law generally. So moved down to Washington, D.C., went to GW, and uh, now I work as a patent attorney at Cooley LLP. And particularly with biotech and pharma companies. So I get to use my uh, technical background uh, to deal with scientists and uh, the business development people. And I also am able to obviously apply my legal skills uh, as it relates to uh, drug approval, uh, obtaining patents and transactions amongst companies. So that means you're, you've been very, very busy in all likelihood, uh, in the la- especially in the last couple of years. Um, first of all, uh, kudos because Cooley is a great firm. Um, and most people don't know this, but I'm a lawyer as well. And, uh, so I know I've known of Cooley for a very long time and they've got a great reputation. Um, so you joined a good firm there, but you've also done a lot of stuff on the VC side. How did you get into that? Yeah, that was, we, I had my own firm for a while, uh, from 2009 to 2016, uh, I had a firm called Finale Hogg. We did uh, patent law in the biotech and pharma industries. We had offices in US and in Berlin, Germany. So we did US and European patent law. And at that time, we came across a client that 
uh, was a, an emerging growth company. It was basically a science out of University of Virginia. Uh, we basically took that on as a, a type of contingency where instead of just doing one project for the contingency, uh, we met with the inventor. We started a company called Fosimmune. We did all the IP, all the corporate work, uh, set up the scientific advisory committee, and then wound up selling the company. So the shareholders were very happy and got kind of bitten by that bug. And we wound up, uh, my partner at the law firm, Thomas Hogg uh, of Finelli Hogg, uh, he and I, along with another colleague who's currently at Cozen O'Connor, John Shire, started a, originally what we wanted to call a VC fund, but not having that track record. Uh, we basically use it as a holding company to start new companies. And two of our companies that we started were Exerna, which is developing uh, new lipid nanoparticle components, which are the delivery mechanism for the mRNA vaccines. And we started another company called C-Reveal doing precision, excuse me, precision oncology. So you're tackling two big issues there. One is the issue of the day uh, with mRNA technology. And then the other, which is oncology, which is I'm sure you know, and others in our audience will know is one of the largest sources of expense in the entire healthcare industry. We kind of lump those together with dialysis, on, broadly oncology, and then specifically uh, in hospital stay or any form of hospitalization. Um, so you're, you're, you're aiming at the right targets, I should say. Yeah, thank you. It's kind of serendipitous. Uh, you know, these both of these companies are spin-outs. C-Reveal is a spin-out of Harvard. And uh, Externa, the LMP company, is a spin-out of George Mason and University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and they kind of just came around. So with the LMP company, Externa, that was certainly uh, very serendipitous, especially with the everything that's going on, obviously. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about mRNA. Because I think one of the questions I think is right, very timely at the moment, is uh, how that technology was advanced uh, or was even leveraged for the pandemic. Talk about that a little bit and then the intellectual property rights associated with that. I know one of the things that happened was Senator Steve Daines advanced the bill. He wrote the bill, sponsored it, and then advanced it uh, so that uh, the drug companies would uh, be able to expedite manufacturing of drugs and ha- without any risk. Um, did they get any intellectual property rights for that? Or you may not know that que- the answer to that question. I don't know. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I would guess, uh, you know, these, you know, you probably heard these companies and the WHO uh, have been talking about removing patent barriers to allow vaccines to be developed for developing countries. And, you know, it's been really a, you know, from the pharma side, a controversial issue because, you know, we tend to look at patents as, you know, a recipe to how to do things and how to make drugs. And certainly you have to provide uh, adequate, you know, written description description to describe what you're doing. But a lot of the underlying technology is trade secrets and know-how. So, um, you know, a lot of these bills that are being passed and these treaties that are being passed on the international level, or at least proposed, um, you know, they try and address this issue, but it, it's re- being addressed at a very superficial level because, as I mentioned, a lot of that know-how and trade secret is just not out there. And if you can imagine, you know, before the, the COVID-19 and before we talked about this, the virus, uh, mRNA technology was really uh, still in the lab. There were no drugs developed from mRNA. And 
the vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech, and from Moderna were the first actual use of mRNA uh, in technology that was basically put out to the public. So, uh, you know, we're seeing real-time development of a new technology that had never been tested, which I would imagine that's kind of making people, you know, promoting the skepticism amongst people. But, you know, the underlying mRNA technology has been around for over 30 years. Uh, Drew Weissman and Katie Carrico, uh, Katie Carrico is now uh, with BioNTech and Drew Weissman is at University of Pennsylvania. They developed uh, this modified mRNA, which is in the, uh, the mRNA that's in the vaccines starting really in the 80s. So it's been around quite a bit of time. So we're seeing really proof of concept of a technology that's been developed uh, over the last three decades. So you raised in, in that one little uh, bit, you, you managed to raise three incredibly complicated ideas. So one is the, uh, the issue of uh, the, the, and it's kind of an ethical and a moral question, which is how do you get drugs into uh, developing nations? And that obviously you've got a, a moral concern about the health and well-being of people in those countries. At the same time, you've got a little bit of a slippery slope because that's uh, analogous to what's happened in China and other developed other countries characterized as developing nations with regard to other forms of technology. Um, then you have the second question, which is one of pragmatics around, yeah, a lot of this is know-how and, and getting it actually into the market or into the into the physical bodies of the individuals who are adversely affected or maybe adversely affected. And you got the third opportunity, the third issue, which is this, the complexity of the technology itself. So let's kind of take those one at a time. Um, Let's talk, let's try and tackle the moral and ethical question. You know, what's your perspective on that? How, how are drug companies handling that? Because on the one hand, they, they need to make money in order to fund the research. And on the other hand, uh, they may not be able to charge the same prices in developing countries. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And, you know, that's a big issue in the United States. You know, we hear a lot of uh, people, you know, in my opinion, it's a little bit of hyperbole, but you hear people saying, the U.S. basically funds other countries' healthcare uh, because our healthcare expenses here are so expensive, and it is, you know, rather frustrating when you see new drugs and biologics being developed that are, you know, tens of thousands of dollars, oftentimes in for per dose or annually, and you hear about stories about people that can't afford it. So, uh, especially older people that are on fixed incomes. So, there's certainly an issue there. The drug companies do try to do. Uh, a lot to get drugs to people that can't uh, afford them. Certainly they have in the US at least that they have certain rebates, they'll offer drugs uh, at a discount or uh, provide coupons for people to uh, even get drugs for free. Now, when we talk about that on the international level, it gets to be a, a little bit dicey because, you know, especially for example, you're talking about, uh, you know, recently with COVID-19 and the vaccines and these boosters. Now, you know, we've heard a lot of uh, debate about should the U.S. Uh, citizens now be getting a third shot, a booster shot, uh, when other countries haven't even, a lot of their population haven't even gotten one. And certainly there's the moral issue. I think the U.S., you know, as a world leader, as a global leader, you know, we do have an obligation to get these drugs to other countries that are less fortunate, but certainly uh, at least in my opinion, you know, when we look back at Operation Warp Speed uh, that the Trump administration started with the to to get these vaccines where they are today, uh, whether it was through R&D or supply agreements, 
uh, a lot of taxpayer, U.S. taxpayer money went to the development of these uh, these vaccines, as well as, um, you know, for example, Pfizer didn't take the R&D money, tax money, but they did take money uh, in the supply agreements. So when you look at it from that perspective, I think the answer is we, we should do both. You know, I think the U.S. has an obligation to provide um vaccines to these countries but i think we also have an obligation to make sure that our people are healthy and i i'm not of the opinion that you know we should start sending vaccines uh, abroad uh, at the expense of u.s citizens especially when it looks like these booster shots are in fact necessary so i think there is it's a it's a balancing test there's a lot of optics um but i think there is the that obligation of the u.s to uh work with these companies now you know, I don't think, you know, when we go to the other issue that you had posed about uh, the intellectual property underlying know-how, you know, I think it's a, it's a tall, it's a big ask to ask these companies to give up their know-how and give up trade secrets to allow, allow developing countries to big, build their own manufacturing uh, capabilities, because this is not an easy thing to do, to develop these mRNA drugs. Even if you have a recipe, it took Pfizer and BioNTech, it took Moderna a while to kind of tweak the exact... Uh, ingredients to get these going. Uh, and especially, you know, when you're thinking about this on a commercial scale, large scale manufacturing, uh, I think it's easier said than done to say we can build a facility, you know, in a developing country and then they can make their own vaccine. I think a better strategy would be to work with the current developers to increase their manufacturing capacity and then use those to distribute vaccines. And we just heard, um, it was either yesterday or today, uh, Vice President Harris is in Vietnam and the U.S. promised that they would deliver a million doses to uh, Vietnam. So I think there is that balancing between uh, getting these vaccines to developing countries as well as uh, now that we know the data shows we likely need a third booster shot, especially in people, uh, immunocompromised people, that we could also uh, allow U.S. citizens to get that third shot. So I think you're analysis is is spot on and i think there are dynamic tensions you have to manage do you have is there a way to have some sort of a moral or an ethical north star if you will or a guidance and i like to say that um you know in my view judgment is the application of your values to the fact pattern before you to make a decision um so you get your values from well i get my values from scripture from dining room table and from other sources. And then I also get my, uh, I, apply, I learn how to apply those values for decision-making purposes by, through an apprenticeship model. So, you know, that's the structure anyway that I think I, I use to think about the issues. Um, what's the North Star then that guides how you think about these issues in foreign countries and developing countries specifically? Yeah, that, that's a, that's a great question. That's a complicated question. I think, you know, Similar to what you said, and I, I commend you for those, because I think, you know, in this country, when we look at the news, it seems like a lot more people should be just sitting around the table and, you know, developing their own moral compass. But uh, to answer your question, it just seems that, uh, you know, as a global leader, you know, we see, uh, for example, you, uh, China and Russia, they were using the distribution of their vaccines, the Sinovac and the uh, Sputnik vaccines, sort of in a, in a diplomatic way to say, okay, if you let us do X in your country will deliver doses. And I think that, that's the opposite, right? That's, you know, kind of, you know, the quid pro quo of give us something and we'll give you something. I think the U.S. has to take a, 
uh, an approach kind of as you suggested, where we're not looking at this to say, hey, we're going to give you these vaccines and we want X in return. We're giving you these vaccines because it's the right thing to do, because a lot of these countries, you know, we look at our own U.S. Food and Drug Administration and which, in my opinion, is the gold standard globally for drug approval. And most countries don't have a a internal agency that approves drugs. They rely on the World Health Organization. That's why when we heard the World Health Organization say these, you know, for example, AstraZeneca is is approved. These third world countries develop on that. So I think close collaboration of the U.S. with the World Health Organization, with other local organizations in specific countries uh, is, is the way to move this forward. And I think it should not be the type of thing where we're doing this with any expectation in return. I think we should do this, you know, as a global leader, as a moral leader, we're trying to get this moral uh, high road, so to speak, back in the U.S., uh, you know, despite what we're seeing on the news about Afghanistan and all this harsh criticism that we hear on the news. You know, I think at the U.S. ultimately is a very generous country. I think the people of the U.S. will agree that, uh, you know, helping these other countries uh, is is our obligation. So I think morally, I think, you know, that's that should be the guiding principle to get these to other countries because it's the right thing to do. And I think it's a, that's a noble approach. And I think you're right. It does give us an opportunity to try and inch back up the to, to reclaim some moral high ground as a nation. We desperately need it uh, for a whole bunch of reasons um, right now. But um, I think one of the things that you point out, which is not well understood by, especially by people who don't travel, uh, I like to throw out a few fun facts around uh, population sizes to give an order of magnitude. You know, people talk about New Zealand, for example, as a country, and it is. Uh, but what people do not realize is that as a country, New Zealand has a population of about three and a half million people between 3.2 and 3.5 million, which means it's about half the size of the Dallas Fort Worth Metroplex where I currently live. So it can't afford the kind of administrative response that we have in the form of approving drugs and, and other things. It just can't afford it. So what people don't realize is that one of our leading exports, although people don't realize it is, uh, is are things like regulations and approvals and, uh, and, uh, and, and sort of uh, validations, if you will, of everything from foods to drugs to any number of other things. So the scale just doesn't work to the advantage of the small country. And when you think, when you hear about New Zealand, you then go over to Australia, which is about 22 million people, smaller than New York City. You go to Austria, it's about 8 million people, Switzerland, 7 million or so, uh, Norway and Sweden, also in the 8 to 10 million range. Again, these are all small countries without the, the base, of the population base to support the the kind of administrative and uh, and approval structures that we have in the United States. So I think we can help a great deal by doing things properly here in the U.S. and then leveraging those to the benefit of the, of the world. We have to be thoughtful about it, of course, and I think your your idea is, is spot on. Um, moving over to the mRNA technology, uh, where I know you are not only just a, a curious, a curious uh, lawyer, but also a, uh, an investor, um, well, a friend of mine re regarded this as what could be the Manhattan Project of our generation, uh, meaning that they viewed the, the scientific breakthrough that's, that underpins mRNA as so critical and so 
perhaps valuable to uh, the future of us as a species that there it was really to be taken note of. Do you give it that much gravitas? You know, I, I do. I, I, I look at mRNA technology and the validation of the technology through the, the manufacture and development of these vaccines as basically a proof of concept of the future of medicine. I mean, when you look at mRNA, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the idea of mRNA has been around for several decades and the, the underlying modifications and studying it in labs has been done for, uh, again, decades. Uh, the problem with it was always this delivery, whether it's, you know, you're talking mRNA or other types of, of RNA technologies. How do we get this mRNA into cells to do what we think it can do? And with the development of these LMPs, uh, although they're not perfect, uh, they've gotten that in there. So we're seeing proof of concept uh, of what could be, you know, the future of medicine, basically getting mRNA to code for different proteins that are potentially defective and diseases associated with defective defections and, um, or excuse me, defective proteins, you're seeing that in real time. So I do, uh, personally, I do believe mRNA is the future of medicine, but I have to, you know, sometimes as an investor, just take a couple steps back. And the reality of it is, is again, this technology has been studied for decades and only now are we seeing the, the application of it. So the application of this for infectious disease in the COVID-19 scenario, uh, although it's promising, this certainly doesn't mean that it, this will be applicable to other technologies. I mean, the, the way the body works, um, we would think that it would be applicable, but certainly we have to be realistic. And, and you know, any type of new mRNA technology, uh, even though these, this technology has been tested and administered in billions of doses through the vaccine, we'll have to go through uh, clinical trials, phase one, phase two, phase three trials, and we'll take a, a long time to get there. You know, again, the, you know, we, we think about the development of these vaccines and they basically the genome was announced in January of 2020. We had a vaccine by December available to the public. That's just not how ordinarily the drug development works. We're talking decades. So, you know, I think this is the future of technology again in my opinion but we'd have to we're probably looking at years before we see other applications of this mrna technology because of the regulatory burdens that won't be as expedited as they were uh in the current situation so that raises another couple of questions one is and we delight and just so you know we we delight in being wonky on this uh podcast so just take refuge in that uh if you have a desire to be even wonkier than that but uh, we love these complicated issues and it's a source of for our viewers of of uh unpacking some of this stuff so i'm grateful that you have kind of the educational background and as well as the professional background to dive into some of this stuff there are two issues that have come up that i've I'm particularly interested in. I've I've seen reports uh, and from uh, research physicians and others uh, that express concern about mRNA for two reasons, and I'd love your your perspective on this. One is uh, that mRNA uh, catalyzes or activates the autoimmune system, but the autoimmune system doesn't necessarily know how to turn off. That's a very simplistic way of describing it. So the concern is we don't know where to go from here 
meaning as your autoimmune system, the autoimmune system doesn't know where to go from here after it's battled uh, the COVID virus or whatever else it's targeted at. The second thing, uh, the second component of the question is, I've heard uh, concerns expressed about uh, particularly women of childbearing years uh, because we are uncertain about what happens with the fetus. Uh, if the woman is pregnant and gets vaccinated, I've, I've seen reports that uh, miscarriage uh, can occur, the, the risk of miscarriage can increase from 10% to 80%. And I've also seen uh, concerns expressed about male fertility and uh, as well as uh, female fertility uh, if you get the vaccination prior to you know, trying to conceive. Uh, do you have a perspective on either of those two issues? Yeah, they're great questions. And I think you know, certainly when you advance a new technology, you know, people should be skeptical. I was skeptical, you know, when this, when I first started hearing the trials uh, and, you know, I think there have been uh, trials done in pregnant women and nursing women to confirm whether these are safe. Now, certainly, you know, one of the issues that arises with these is all the data we have is short term. Typically yes. when you're talking about drug development, you know, you're talking over the course of roughly 10 years, sometimes more, uh, give or take. So, there you have adequate time to, you know, you do your phase one trial, phase two early on, you still have five, eight years before, you know, potentially you get drug approval. So you can analyze those people that have gotten it to see if there are any long-term effects. Uh, so in this case, because we're obviously in a pandemic situation, that time wasn't a luxury we had. So we had to get these vaccines out there without knowing, you know, are there these long-term effects? Now, uh, as I mentioned, there has been a trial in, in women that showed at least uh, over the short term, there were no issues. Uh, there are anecdotal. There's a lot of anecdotal information out there uh, where, you know, you hear about someone who's gotten vaccinated and has either had a miscarriage or, um, you know, that, um, you know, without being insensitive, you know, that there has to be a causal relationship, obviously, to show that could have just been something else. So, uh, I think these are valid concerns uh, because we don't have that time. I can't say 100% these are safe. Um, I could say based on the data, uh, I believe they're safe. Um, the mRNA that's delivered, the modified RNA, that stays in your body for about 24 hours, then it's gone. So it's not there very long. The LMPs, uh, the lipid nanoparticles, which is the delivery system, uh, that also could generate a potential autoimmune uh you know, an immune response, uh, you know, anything you put in your body that's foreign will develop that. So these are concerns. So at this point, uh, the answer I would say is I have not seen any definitive data that in my opinion, you know, I have a 10 year old son, if the vaccine becomes available uh, for him, uh, to me, the risk of him getting the virus outweighs potential concerns. So I think people have to kind of make that risk benefit analysis in their head. I mean, it's not by any means, um, you know, people should, no one should tell anyone, oh, don't worry, these are completely safe. We just don't have that data. But based on the data we do have, uh, at least at this time, I think the, the vaccines are safe. Uh, generally, the mRNA in these, we have seen side effects, uh, but generally I believe they, they are safe. And I think a lot of the, the information that's out there uh, is more anecdotal than causal when it comes to uh, pregnancy, when it comes to fertility. So the fertility question arose because um, I know of the 
drugs that women were taking back in the 50s and early 60s to prevent miscarriages. And what happened was, uh, you know, decade, a decade later, unfortunately, those mothers now had uh, acutely deaf children. So we, you know, you're right on, I think you're right on target with regard to the fact that the, the length of the longitudinal study isn't long enough, uh, in essence, to, uh, to really understand it. So it's harder to figure out and predict than we would like. But um, I understand the analysis, which is it appears to be okay right now, and we don't have enough, uh, enough data, and there's a pandemic raging that we need to focus on. I'm curious, though, you're, with regard to your son, um, because it seems to me that children, particularly, and I'm using the term children to refer to anybody under, under 12, um, are really unlikely to have any severe or acute problems with from getting uh, either COVID, the alpha variant or the Delta variant. Um, and they would likely develop antibodies as a result of getting it. So if your choice is get the vaccination and have a, a remedy that's all, that's useful for 12 to 24 or maybe longer months, more months, or alternatively, uh, have the get the disease and then have the antibodies, which we don't even know when they they run out. Wh- which would which would you prefer? How do you make that? How do you do that analysis? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's a, a question that's personal to every parent, and certainly, I would never tell someone else. Uh, you know, you you need to get your kid vaccinated. It's a personal decision. Um, when I weigh the facts in my mind, uh, it comes out to you know, I would get my son vaccinated. I think, you know, we're hearing obviously a lot about Delta variant. Um, they're probably, in my opinion, there probably will, before we get this under control on a global scale, uh, be other variants uh, that, that are out there that potentially could be equivalent uh, in transmissibility and maybe even more lethal than uh, Delta. Uh, but taking a couple of steps back, um, you know, some of the things that we talk a lot about the vaccine and we don't know a lot about the vaccine, but what's also true is we don't know a lot about the virus. And, you know, we're hearing about these long-term effects that people are having relatively healthy people, um, you know, and there's a basis for that. When you think about, um, you know, people, women that get uh, papillomavirus, they have a higher risk for cervical cancer. When you think about people, that have actually gotten uh, chickenpox, they have a higher level uh, or a higher risk of getting shingles when they're older. So it's not completely uh, out of the norm to say, hey, if you get a virus, there could be long-term complications. And we are hearing that. So when I look at the science behind the mRNA, uh, when I look at my son, when I look at the potential long-term risks, and when we look at the fact that, you know, because of the Delta variant, uh, the, the number of cases in children are does seem to be going up. The number of hospitalizations does seem to be going up, although I agree with you, certainly not to the level uh, that we've saw in adults. Uh, but when I weigh all those variables, that's where I come out uh, in saying that I would probably have my son vaccinated. The fact that there could be these long-term effects, we are seeing uh, higher transmissibility amongst children, and no one wants to be that you know, person that just digs their heels in and says, hey, uh, this is not for my kid. And then God forbid something happens to your kid. Uh, So, you know, that's kind of how I come to the conclusion that at least for me, it's a personal decision that I would say I would give it, allow my son to get the vaccine. 
You did an excellent job of framing the analysis. I'm, I appreciate that. And I, I think the, it's especially interesting coming from a, a venture capital guy, uh, because at the end of the day, what we're really talking about is, is how, what's our, our tolerance for risk. And whether you're an investor or uh, a medical expert or a policymaker, uh, or just an individual trying to make good decisions for yourself and your family, at the end of the day, it all comes down to risk. And so there's a legal question that I've been bouncing around for a while and my, you know, kind of tapping into other aspects of your, your uh, very capable training. Um, the way I look at this is there's a dynamic tension that this nation's been wrestling with since inception, which is the dynamic tension between the rights of the individual versus the rights of the collective. And what I like to say is that Historically, under common law, we've generally said that the rights of the individual prevail unless there's a compelling public policy reason for doing so. And that usually results in that usually correlates to something called a material risk, which I normally use as a rule of thumb of 5% number. So as a result, if you use that analysis, one could, could conclude that there's not a material risk because the threat of death for COVID is about you know, 1.2, 1.3%. Um, the threat of death for, for uh, kids is lower than that. And the threat of death from the Delta variant, especially if, you've, if you have been vaccinated, is about 0.0007%. So um, is, is my analysis off in your regard or do you, do you see it differently? No, I think when you look at the numbers, uh, I think, you know, those numbers are all factually correct. Uh, I don't disagree. And that's, you know, that's why we're in really a, uh, a situation that we've never been in, right? When people, you know, the facts you just presented um, are valid facts, you know, and, you know, looking at that, uh, statistically, there's probably, a, you know, at least for, I'll talk personally, for my son, there's a very, very low risk. So, whether you draw the line uh, at a specific number, like you mentioned, 5% of where, you know, that risk tolerance is, or in my case, a lower number, uh, you know, I just come at it from the perspective of, you know, the, the potential long-term risks. I don't want to be, you know, put my son at jeopardy, you know, of getting the virus of potential long-term risks. But, you know, again, it's a personal decision and, uh, I don't dispute any of those facts. And, you know, if, if a parent wants to say, hey, you know, the risk of this is under 1%, um, you know, so be it. But that risk to me is still um, not something I'm willing to take. So it's just a matter of, you know, where you draw that risk threshold, I think. I think you're, you're exactly right. And I, and I appreciate your signaling that the idea that it's such a personal decision. Um, I think we all have this challenge and we want the best for our country. We want the best for our community. We want the best for our family and we want the best for ourselves. And it's, it's not an, this is not an easy uh, thorn free conversation or a thorn free issue to, uh, to navigate. We, as we've seen our nation really struggle with it in so many ways. And I think it's the reason for some of the deep div divisions we see in, in, in the politics of this all, but Hopefully we can move to a better place. Dean, I cannot thank you enough. What a rich conversation uh, this has been. And I'm so grateful that you have invested your time and treasure to, to be so well uh, educated on so many different complicated uh, uh, disciplines. Um, it's been fun to have you and I'd love to have you again. And uh, gosh, I'm, thank you so much for joining me today. 
Oh, it was my pleasure. I'd love to join you again. And thank you for bringing these issues out into the public. I think it's really important because, you know, again, I think a lot of what we hear on the news, it comes across as finger pointing and people, you know, no one likes to be told what to do. So I really appreciate the fact that you bring these factual issues out and present these facts to allow people, you know, to make their own decisions. So thank you so much for having me. Thanks for watching this week's episode of Civil Discourse. To learn more about today's topic or our guest, visit www.the60percentsolution.com or www.tfip.group.